Please turn with me to John chapter 1. It's the gospel according to St. John. And in verse 1, we're going to read to verse 5. This is our passage today. We studied it two weeks ago. We started the, studied the first two verses as we look at the deity of Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God. In verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was the light, the life, I'm sorry, in him was the life, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we recognize that this is the word you have for us. Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace and, and grant us focus, Lord, as we seek to study it, as we seek to understand what you have for us this morning, that we would recognize Christ as fully God, Lord, fully able to atone for our sins, fully able to sympathize in our weakness, Lord, as man, and we worship him. We come and bow down at his feet this morning. Lord, I pray for those that are here, Lord, who do not know Christ, Lord, who have not accepted him as their Lord. Lord, I pray that they would, because it is a reality that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lord of all, whether they re realize it or not. And so I pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts, Lord, that you open the eyes of their hearts, Lord, that they would see your truth in your word, and that they would repent and place their hope in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so last week, Pastor Philip DeCourcy shared with us a message titled, The Precious Blood. How many of you were able to come to the conference last weekend? That's great. That's a good bit of you. So we took some time as a church to, to come together on, on Friday evening of last weekend and Saturday morning and Sunday morning to study the topic of the cross of Christ. And it was a really sweet time. And Philip DeCourcy was talking about the, the overwhelming value of the blood of Jesus. We learned that the blood is only valuable because of the character of who shed it. That the blood of Jesus in and of itself is ordinary. That is, it is made up of, it's made up of the same stuff that your blood is made up of. But it is extraordinary, extraordinary in the sense that it is extremely valuable because he was fully obedient to the law of God, and he was the only one who was able to take upon himself the wrath of God that is for our behalf. And this is the sweet message of the cross. It's, Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. And we just had a really sweet time. Again, another way that we as a body of Christ can come together and rejoice in these things. The church event, the church conference is one of my favorite events of the year. I always find it so refreshing and renewing as we, we, we kind of stop the, the, the mundane, if you will, system of events that we have, that, that, that we have a system. We come together on Sunday mornings, and this is a weekend we can take time outside of our ordinary schedule to devote precious time together to study the Bible. And what a sweet time that is. As Pastor DeCourcy was speaking about the blood of Christ, I began to think a little bit more, and my mind started to wander, and I started to think about the blood 
of the martyrs, the blood of those saints who have gone before us, who have shed their blood for the cause of Christ, who, who were completely and wholeheartedly devoted to the scriptures and devoted to the truth of God's word. And so today, I want to start our introduction by working through a little, little mini biography account of a man named Polycarp. Does anyone know who Polycarp was? Okay, so just a few of you. Polycarp is not a Pokemon. Sounds like he's a Pokemon. But no, Polycarp was a man. He was actually the Bishop of Smyrna. He lived in the Roman Empire in and around the time of 100 A.D. 100 A.D. And he was living in a time in Rome, in a, in a, around Rome, in the Roman Empire, when the Christians were being severely persecuted. Christians were being dragged into the Colosseum and other major uh, events, and they were being tortured. They were being killed. They were being burned at the stake. They were bringing wild animals like, like tigers and lions to literally shred them to death as entertainment for the people because Rome viewed the Christians as against the, the lordship of Caesar, that they would have, if you were a Roman citizen, you would pay homage to Caesar, that you would, you would profess, uh, profess Kaiser Curios, or Caesar is Lord. And, and as a Christian, you can't do that. You can't, Jesus is Lord. He's the only Lord. And so they would be slain by gladiators and, and torn to, to shreds by animals. And one time, uh, Polycarp, who was a leader of the church of Smyrna, he was actually... Uh, arrested, and he, there was an arrest warrant placed for Polycarp. This was in 155 A.D. And when the soldiers came to, to, to arrest Polycarp, they found him in a cottage outside of the city. They came in, and they didn't realize how old he was. He was 86 years old, an old man. Seeing his age and his great love and kindness towards them, they were, they were really moved. They, they, they were pleading with him, saying, you know, just recant. This, all that would happen is they would be brought before the crowds, the Christians would be, and, and they would, the, the official would come forth and ask them, do you recant? Or, or do you recant of your atheism is what they called it, because the Christians denied the pantheon, the, the many gods of the Roman religious system. And so they were burning them because they were not submitting to their religion. And so the soldiers are pleading with Polycarp. Polycarp actually lays out a feast for them. They come in and he says, yeah, can I get you anything? Let me serve you. Let me feed you. So he's literally giving them a meal and, and, and wine, and, and he's, he's, he's serving them as a servant does. Uh, and they just feel terrible. And, but he remains unchanged. He does not want to recant. He does not want to uh, say anything against the Lord Jesus or claim any loyalty to Caesar or Rome. And when he, they bring him, they eventually bring him to the Colosseum, they tie him to a stake, and the, the official comes to him, and Polycarp famously says, in response to him being asked to recant, Polycarp says, 86 years I have served him, that is Jesus, and he has never done me harm. Now how could I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then speaking praying in his prayer, he says, I bless you, O God, for making me worthy of this day and this hour, that I might be among your martyrs, and I may drink of the cup of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they persisted in asking him to denounce Christ and to bend the knee to Caesar, Polycarp again denied. He says, as they tried to nail him to the post, 
Polycarp says, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from the nails. And then it is recorded, we don't know again the validity of this, but it is recorded that as he was finishing his prayer that they set the fire on him. And as he began to burn, it's recorded that it, people, eyewitnesses say it was like a pleasing aroma lifting up to heaven. And allegedly, the flames did not harm him, and they actually had to stab him with a dagger. Now, I don't know, again, the, the validity of that account. I'm not here to say that that's actually what happened, but I would say I would not, I would not totally dismiss that, that the Lord can sovereignly place a hedge of protection around his martyrs, those who have come boldly to profess the faith. So why do you think Polycarp did this? Why would, why would a man, again, an 86-year-old man who, who's lived a good life, why would he choose to die this way if it was so easy for him to recant? What was the reason? And again, they were asking him to deny Christ. They were asking him to promote Caesar as Lord, this Caesar worship. And primarily, this is, an important, this is an important thing because Polycarp recognized the authority and the lordship of Christ. He recognized that Jesus is God. He is not just a man, and he's worthy of our worship. And the, this idea is worth dying over. Polycarp went to the mat over the deity of Christ, and I'm here to convince you that we should too. And as we come back to this wonderful, beautiful text in the gospel according to St. John, we're reminded of the great truth that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And this is, the tr this is truth that we must declare. And, then, and in this truth, we declare our allegiance to Christ as Lord. Last week, we looked, or two weeks ago, we looked at verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And I highlighted three bold claims that the Apostle John has for us, three statements that he is making about who Jesus is. As we recap, I'll go through them real quick. So number one, John claims that Jesus is eternal and pre-existent, that Jesus is eternal and pre-existent. John starts by giving us a glimpse into the creation account, or again, we talked about tying back to Genesis 1, the creation of the material universe. In that creation, time and space was brought into the fold. The material universe was brought into the fold. And right off the bat, he is claiming that Jesus was. It says, in the beginning was the word. Before time and space, before the material universe, Jesus already existed in perfect love and harmony with the Father and the Spirit. Secondly, John claims that Jesus is distinct from the Father and from the Spirit. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Again, he's making, he's making a claim about the distinct nature of Jesus as God, but apart from God, distinct as a person within the Trinity. He is unique, characteristically separate from the Father and the Spirit. And then the third bold claim he makes, he says that Jesus is God, that somehow he, again, in the mystery of the Trinity, that we do not fully understand that Jesus is God, yet he is distinct within the Trinity. He is his distinct person, but fully equal in authority and power as the Father and the Spirit. 
He's been dancing around this point a little bit to this point, but now he'll just come out and drop the mic, so to speak, that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is God. And I'd like to take the time today to emphasize that if you're a believer here, there is no sweeter doctrine, there is no sweeter truth that you can believe about Jesus that is found in the Bible, that if he is not God, he cannot bear your sin, and if he is not fully pure, fully, fully righteous, he is not able to atone for your sin. And so then we talked about the word, this idea of John using this phrase, the, the word, the word was with God. The word was God. Why is he saying, why is he using this phrase? Why doesn't he just say Jesus? In the beginning was Jesus, and, the, and Jesus was with God. Well, we highlighted last, or a couple weeks ago, that he's comparing and co- contrasting Jesus as the creator to the worldly Greek philosophies of the day. The Greeks believed that there was this impersonal, disembodied word, as they called it, logos of the day in the Greek, that commanded the universe that was involved in creation and was involved in sustaining the universe around them. And so John is coming out and saying, yeah, you're almost there, but this word you're talking about, he has a name. He walked among us. He has paid for the sins of his people. He is worthy of your praise and of your worship. And later in verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14, John makes this abundantly clear by saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet again, he shares equally in his deity within the Trinity. He is full of grace and truth, and that means that Jesus is abounding with grace to, again, lavish upon his people. He's full of truth, again, which We know that truth comes from the only real truth, God's word, which the Spirit works in our hearts to illumine it that we might understand who God is more and how we might please and honor him with our lives. If you want to know who Jesus is, you want to know who God is, read the word. Knowing Jesus only comes through reading the word. It's not some weird cathartic experience that I go out in nature, I go take a hike, and I, I, I want to know who God is. I want to experience him. If I sit and meditate for three hours in the darkness, that I will, I will know the truth about who God is. This is what the worldly religions will say. It's how you understand who you are, how you understand who God is, and that is absolutely not true. It's not some weird spiritual experience. Knowing God and knowing Jesus comes through knowing the word and reading it, meditating on it, praying through it. Guys, we need to be people of the Bible. We need to be known as people who study and value the Word of God. And so this week, we're going to continue in verse 3. So I've titled this portion, Christ in Creation. Christ in Creation. So in verse 3, it says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So in verse 3, again, the first two verses, the Apostle John is kind of giving us the credentials of who Jesus is. He's saying that Jesus is God, that Jesus was he is preexistent, he's eternal, and that he exists within the Trinity. Now in verse 3, he's explaining something, a little bit of what Jesus has done. Jesus as creator. 
We know that God the Father, again, orchestrated the creation of the, the universe, the creation of the world. But we see, and we're given a glimpse in this text, in John 1, that Jesus is used as God's mouthpiece to actively create everything. Again, by the word of God, everything was formed. We know this to be true from Scripture. And so Jesus, again, is the one actively speaking the universe into existence. He is the one doing this. And in case you don't understand the meaning of all things, John continues to go on. He kind of doubles down in verse 3, saying the same thing twice. Again, putting mass emphasis on it. He's saying all things came into being through him, Jesus. And then he doubles down by saying the exact same thing. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the sole creator of all things. He absolutely is. That's what John's saying. And there's one thing that you can take away from the first three verses of this book. The first three verses, the theme is that Jesus is God. Again, he's one with the Father, one with the Spirit. He's eternally pre-existent. He actively created the universe and everything in it. And this same Jesus is sovereignly, actively working today in the lives and the hearts of every man and every woman. He has full authority over the world he has created. Again, underneath the orchestration of God the Father creating the world. And so let's move to verse 4. Again, I've titled this Life in Christ. Life in Christ. Now, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In this portion of text, John is, in fact, talking about two separate types of life if you will. He just explained, he belabored in the first three verses that Jesus created all things, that he has given breath and life, physical life to all things, to all people. But also what it's explaining here and what John's trying to give us a glimpse into is that Jesus is the giver of spiritual life as well as physical life, that those who would repent trust in Christ, that those who would commit their lives to active service, to to obedience through the word, they would have a personal relationship with Christ. He offers spiritual life to all who would do this. And again, the, the, the term or thinking of Jesus as the light is not a foreign concept that we don't find in scripture. We find it all over the place. Later in John's gospel, In chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is his self-proclamation. I am the light of the world. Jesus does this many times. He He uses these metaphors by saying, I am the light of the world. I am the door which you need to enter. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And again, this idea of the world and, and, and Satan being represented by darkness is scattered throughout Scripture as well. This is a super simple or super biblical con- comparison and contrast, lightness, light and dark. And we see multiple, um, see multiple examples of this. I'll just run through a few. Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the, spirit, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might, may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And likewise in Scripture, we see hell depicted as a place of utter darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a pleasant picture. Any person who is apart from Christ, who is not submitted to Him as Lord, this is your fate. This is what you have. This is what your reward. This is what you've earned. This is what you have merited. Those who are not in Christ are shrouded in darkness, overwhelmed, hemmed in. This is the picture we get from Scripture. But just as the world and life apart from Christ is described as darkness, Christ and life with Him is described as light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's saying that, that, that God the Father has revealed light, the light of men who is Christ. He has shown it in our hearts. That is not, not revealed, it, but he's saying it's shown, it's shined in your hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God through the face of Christ. In the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse into what the new heavens and the new earth will be, this place that, that the Lord is preparing for us, this place that we can look forward to where sin will be vanquished. In chapter 21, it says, and I saw, this is John speaking, by the way, the same John who has written this gospel that we're working through. He's ha he has this vision on the island of Patmos where he's exiled. And in chapter 21, he says, I saw no temple in this heaven and earth, for the, the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That is Jesus. He's talking symbolically here that Jesus, again, is, is illumining. He's, he's, light, he's lighting up the place with his glory, and the Lamb is just a way to describe Jesus. It says, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. In the daytime there will be no need for it. it there will be no need for night there, its gates will never be closed. And for the believer, there is no greater hope. This is our hope, that we would be with God forever. We'd be with Christ forever, our King, our Savior, our Lord, that, that the glory which we once were, weren't able to comprehend, the glory which we literally cannot see or we will perish, is unveiled, that we'd see the full glory of Christ. You will be there in sinless perfection with ever, forever. Our sin our battle with sin will be over. Our struggle with sin will be done. Our race will be run. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we will only weep tears of joy as we look upon Christ, our King, who has given us all things in Him and has claimed victory over the darkness of this world, the prince of the power of the air over the devil, over Satan. And that day when Christ returns, you will have to... I'm sorry... I skipped a little ahead of my notes here. So if you were here this morning and you have not, again, 
turn from your sin, if you've not trusted in Christ, we know that God is a God of light, and He cannot let sin go unpunished. And that day when Christ returns, or you die, and you come before the judgment seat of God, when you come to stand before a holy God, the veil will be lifted, your works will be bare. You will be no longer able to hide in the darkness that you revel in, that you love, that you desire if you are not in Christ. You will be exposed and your wickedness will be on display for God and for all people. So I beg you, repent now. Why not let, I say this a lot, but why not let today be the day you repent and cross over from the dominion of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. So verse 5, we're going to continue on. It says, verse 5 says, and, let, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it or comprehend it, it says in the NASB. And I'd like to take some time to kind of work through that. I don't think that's a, a great translation. I have in my, I have the LSB here, which says overtake it or overcome it. Um, the NASB says compre- the darkness could not comprehend it. Now, now that's not the, 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 the best translation. While it's true that you know, sinners in, in the fallen state, in, in worldly people cannot comprehend the things of God. They cannot ha- comprehend the goodness, the light, the glory of God. I don't think this is what the Apostle John is trying to to get this picture he's trying to give us. I think more rightly, as the LSB says, it, it's the darkness could not overtake it. This is, this is a text primarily speaking about the authority and the power of Jesus, saying the light shines in the darkness. This is what happens, that the light pierces through. When you bring a, a flashlight into a dark room, the, light, the, the darkness scatters. There's nowhere for it to hide. That this is what Christ has done. This is what he will do when he returns. The darkness will scatter. It will be gone. And then he goes on to say, and the darkness did not overtake it. The darkness could not overcome the light, the glory, the goodness of Christ. And again, in Scripture, intellectually, light represents biblical truth. It represents Truth, darkness represents error or falsehood. Morally, light represents holiness and purity, while darkness represents sin and evil. Darkness is, in Scripture is often tied or related to Satan, while light is described to, to represent Christ. In this case, Christ as the living word presented to us. The light shines through the darkness. Christ in his purity and his radiance cuts through the sin of this world, making all things pure. Jesus conquers the evil of this world. We know how this ends. The plans and purposes of God will always come to fruition. They will always come to pass. There is no struggle. This idea, this picture the world presents, or worldly Christianity, if you will, if you want to call it that, presents this struggle, maybe this arm. I I remember in high school I had a friend who his laptop uh, picture was, was a picture of God the Father, which, again, I don't condone that, uh, a picture of God the Father arm-wrestling Satan, as if it was like this heavyweight boxing matchup that, you know, you had two equals. This is not what Scripture portrays. 
that God, the plans and purposes of God will always be accomplished and they will never be thwarted by the devil and the sinful world we live in. And as I, as I wrap up, how many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy? All right, that's, that's a lot of you. You're all homeschooled, so that makes sense. Um, that's not a knock, that's a compliment. So I don't know if you remember, but in the second movie, some of you are like, oh yeah, this is, my, this is my jam, this is my series. So in the second movie, again, remember with me, in the Battle of Rohan, not this Rohan, all right. Uh, in the Battle of Rohan, there's a scene in which again, Aragon and Theoden, the king, ride out to meet the battle, the, the arming, the battling army. They're kind of hemmed in. They're, 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 they're camped out in this cave. They can't get out. They're overwhelmed by enemies. And they, they break through and they come out. In this scene, we see Gandalf shows up. All right, he's like, he's like the, cool, the cool dude who just comes in and saves the day. Dressed in white, comes up on this mountain ridge. And he, he gathers and he brings all of these riders of Rohan who have been exiled. And he comes in and he leads them down the hill to charge out at the armies of evil, to charge at the orcs. And as the orcs are preparing for battle, they're assembling their front lines to receive, to, to, to fight off Gandalf and this army. Just as he comes down the hill, you know, there's dramatic elvish music playing, and you know, it's, it's slow-mo, and they're all on their horses. Just as they come down over the hill, a mat, the sun just peeks over the mountain. And you get this crazy picture of the armies of orcs, the armies of Mordor that are completely dismayed. They cannot see what's happening. And they start running, and they are utterly destroyed. And this is funny, and my wife's laughing because she knows this scene makes me tear up because it's the coolest scene ever. But besides that, why, is it, why does it draw out emotion in me? Why, why would it do that? Again, not because it's just a cool fight scene. Again, because there's biblical parallelisms. When I think of that, I think of Christ. I think of what he will, what he will accomplish, what he has accomplished for, for me in, in putting to death my sin, but also what he will do on the last day. That This is not a contest. This is not a battle of equals. Christ will vanquish the evils of this world. He will vanquish sin and the devil. It's not a fight. We see this picture later on in Revelation 19. Well, I would like to take a point of application really quick, if I will. Because again, you guys get really excited when I talk about the Lord of the Rings, and rightfully so, it's a good movie. But I would say that, and I would encourage you and warn you of the foundation of your faith, that your faith should not be based in things, purely emotional things. We have an intellectual faith where we, we know things about God. I was once listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg, and he was talking about this experience where he visited a church, and the lead worship pastor gets up to, to start, and they have the clock on the screen, and it's counting down one, two, three, you know, I'm sorry, three, two, one. And the worship pastor gets up, grabs the mic, and how are we feeling this morning, guys? How are we feeling? And for whatever reason, it really bothered Alistair Begg, and he said, don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. What do I know about God? What is the truth that I cling to in those moments in the darkness when I'm, I'm not feeling it? Guys, I will confess, there are, there are moments when I come into a worship service or we sing a song that's maybe not my favorite, and I'm not, not really feeling it. The, the emotion's not there. You know? 
There, there are times, seasons in life, there's hardship in life where you're not really feeling it. I'm not really feeling the grace of God in my life. Those are moments in, throughout your entire life you need to base your faith on the bedrock of truth found in God's Word. Guys, I was in Neyland Stadium yesterday with 100,000 Vols fans, and they were playing the national anthem, and that big old you know, plane flew over, and I've got a bunch of rednecks screaming, and we're, it was awesome. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. It was super cool. That's emotional. Man, I'm like, oh, that's, that's so cool. Guys, we can be drawn by our emotions, but our emotions, while they are good and the Lord gives them at times, they ebb and flow. It's not, it's not what we base our faith on. We base our faith on the truth of God's word. And in those moments, in the darkness, when we're tempted to believe lies about God, when we're tempted to sin, we cling to that truth. Who is God? Who is Christ? What has he done on my behalf? And how ought, to, how ought I to live in response to these things? So now to Revelation 19. Revelation, you can turn there if you want. Yeah, just, just turn there if you have your Bible. <laughs> Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Look at this beautiful picture. The authority and the, the power of Christ. Again, John writing this, says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no other except himself he knows, which no one other except himself knows. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine white linen clean, were following him on white horses. From, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Guys, this is the word of God we have come to study. This is the word of God that John is talking about. God, in his great love and in his mercy, sent Christ to die on your behalf. In theology, we distinguish it as called the humiliation of Christ, that Christ, seated in realms of glory, always continual praise around his throne. Christ left his throne. He was made low. He was humiliated. He was made like you and me. He left his glory aside, and he lived a perfect sinless life. Again, coming to be the propitiation for our sins, that he might be the perfect sacrifice prepared as a sheep for slaughter. In Isaiah 55, it says, seek the Lord now while he may be found. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. If you have not done so, do so now. Again, not based on emotion, based on the truth of God's word. What do you know to be true? Cling to that truth. Entrust your life to him, for he alone is faithful and true. 
He alone is able to atone for your sin. There is no other way. There has been made no other way to God. Again, in, in, this, in this, we have this picture in these last days, as it were, as it is written in Scripture, the time we live in is, is called the last days. We have this picture almost of, of, of God extending the free gift of grace in the gospel through the death of Jesus Christ. He's extending it to all men. He wishes that all men would come to saving faith. And it's almost as if he is extending the arm of grace in Christ and with his other arm is almost holding back the wrath that is to come. There is a judgment that is coming very soon in these last days. And one day, the arms will both drop. It'll be too late. One day, either when Christ returns or you meet him, you meet him in glory, in judgment when you die. Again, I would implore you to do that now to honor him as Lord now with your life. Just a few, I'm going over here, so just a few questions as we wrap up. What do you value in life? What's most important to you? If your friends were to answer this for you, what do you think they'd say? If your parents were to answer this, what do you think they'd say? What do you value in life? Secondly, what, I'm sorry, secondly, are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light? Is your life Characterized as your life distinguished by you following after the desires of your heart, sinful desires, trying to live a comfortable life and do things that you want to do, and getting mad when people hinder that or come in the way of that? Or is your life marked by repentance, seeking to honor the Lord in obedience to the word? Because if you think that, if you're here this morning and you have not entrusted your life to Christ, if you think that you know, your, your parents or, or other believers or leaders in the church, they've got it all together, man. They're, 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 they're perfect. They're great. That's not what the Christian life is, is about. It's about repentance, guys. We sin every single day over and over again. We gossip. We lust. We are lazy. And we get angry. We get frustrated. And the Christian, the life of the Christian ought to be marked by repentance, how you respond to that sin it's saying that I, am, I know I'm insufficient. I know I can't atone for my sin. And Christ has done that. And Lord, I lay this upon Christ and I recognize that I need Christ. And I recognize that I in myself cannot save myself and I cannot be good enough. But that propels me to do good works. What Christ has done makes me want to honor him and love him and sin less because the sin that I commit is the sin that Christ died for. Every single sin. So might we be a people who are repenting continually? And lastly, what do, you, what do you desire most in life? Is it comfort, success, wealth, maybe being athletic? Or do you desire most that God's name would be glorified and honored? These are things I want you to think about today. Let's pray. Lord, we are just... We stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of what you have done in Christ Jesus, Lord. We thank you for, for John, Lord. We thank you for, Lord, the writing of this book, Lord, through your spirit that you have given us instructions for our life. You have given us accounts of the life of Christ that we might follow in his example, Lord. And we thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is God. We know this to be true. 
Lord, that he has come, he has made an atonement, he has brought, again, the light of life to those who would come in repentance. And Lord, we rejoice in this. Lord, help us to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. Lord, not based on our emotions, not based on, Lord, the fickle emotions of our flesh, Lord, but based in the bedrock of truth that is your word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.